I think people always looked at Al Gore as being stiff, and he was the complete opposite. This is Election 2000 Over Time. I'm your host, Emma Soslowski. So I had to join them at a rally, and it was in some coliseum. So I jumped out. I went to this hallway. I didn't know where to go. No one told me anything. And there was this couple, and they looked really familiar. And she was beautiful, and he looked kind of cool and funky. And I looked really lost, and they said, are you looking for someone? I said, well, I'm supposed to meet up with Al Gore. And they said, well, he's with Bill Clinton, and we're getting ready to walk in there and meet them. And I said, can I wait with you? And they said, sure. We walk in, and Bill Clinton said, David Bowie, I've always wanted to meet you. And my first impression was, whoa, David Bowie? Al Gore, whatever. So I said, hi, I'm Callie Shell. Um, I'm going to be taking pictures of you. I hear you're not really excited about it, but just let me know. And he said, I'm very excited to have you. And I said, is that what your wife said you should say? He said, yes, she did. <laughs> and he was great. He was funny. I said, I'm so sorry I didn't introduce myself right away. He said, Al Gore, David Bowie, I understand Callie Shell first began working for Al Gore in 1992, during the last few weeks of the Clinton-Gore campaign. After Clinton won the presidency, Callie became Gore's official vice presidential photographer. In the beginning, it was so obvious that he did not want a photographer. I mean, if you really think about it, you're going through your 40s, so it's kind of like a midlife crisis. Your hair is changing, your body's changing, you know, you're not seeing your family as much. And there's a person taking a picture of you every single day of your life. Every single day, including the 37 days from election night through the Florida recount. And as Gore's official photographer, Callie had access to it all. Access that was hard-earned. When you're at the White House, your whole life is building this relationship. But at the end, it's kind of a give and take. You know, you... You're asking these people to document everything and to trust you. So you have to prove to them, I'm not really here to take advantage of you. I'm not here to um, get you in the bad light. I'm just here to show how we got to this point. And it sounds crazy, but the whole eight years paid off because in the end, in 2000, it all got down to one night, a whole election in five minutes changed. And we started this whole historical process. So, you know, there are these times where you're sitting somewhere and what you're doing, you realize, is, is history. Just a reminder, throughout this podcast, we will be referencing photos taken by Callie and the photographer with the Bush Cheney team, David Kennerly. And there are a few ways you can view their photos while you listen. You can go to CNN.com slash election 2000. That's two zero 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 and click episode three. Or you can just click on the link in the description for this episode in your podcast app. Episode three, a hell of a thing. (laughs) 
on Monday, November 27, 2000, for the first time in the history of the United States, a presidential candidate contests the outcome of the election. It's been 12 days since the Florida Supreme Court refused to end manual recounts in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. 12 days since Gore addressed the nation and suggested a one-on-one meeting with Bush that was promptly rejected. And in that time, a lot has happened. The deadline for the receipt of overseas absentee ballots has come and gone. And with it, Bush's lead has increased to 930 votes. Lawsuits and court challenges are filed on practically a daily basis. And over the Thanksgiving holiday, Bush's running mate, Dick Cheney, suffers a mild heart attack, for which he's briefly hospitalized. And then there's the Supreme Court. Gore's team petitions the Florida Supreme Court to force Secretary of State Katherine Harris to include the recount totals in her final vote tally. In a unanimous ruling, the court sides with Gore and gives counties until November 26th to complete their manual recounts. The Bush team appeals this decision, taking it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the November 26th deadline is on the Sunday following Thanksgiving Day, and despite a determined effort by the three counties, only Broward County is able to complete their recount on time. Miami-Dade, realizing they won't make the deadline, calls it quits on Wednesday. Palm Beach misses the 5 p.m. deadline by just a few hours. In the end, Gore nets 567 additional votes. At 7.30 p.m. on November 26th, Secretary Harris certifies Governor Bush the winner of Florida's 25 electoral votes. The official tally shows Bush with a lead of 537 votes. Later that evening, he addresses the nation. Good evening. The last 19 days have been extraordinary ones. As our nation watched, we were all reminded on a daily basis of the importance of each and every vote. We were reminded of the strength of our democracy, that while our system is not always perfect, it is fundamentally strong and far better than any other alternative. The election was close, but tonight after a count, a recount, and yet another manual recount, Secretary Cheney and I are honored and humbled to have won the state of Florida, which gives us the needed electoral votes to win the election. We will therefore undertake the responsibility of preparing to serve as America's next president and vice president. The next day, November 27th at 12.14 p.m., Gore files to contest the election. Later that evening, despite a poll showing that the majority of Americans, including over a third of his own supporters, think he should concede, Gore goes before the American people to make a case for patience. Good evening. Thank you for taking the time to listen tonight. Every four years, there is one day when the people have their say. In many ways, the act of voting and having that vote counted is more important than who wins the majority of the votes that are cast. Ignoring votes means ignoring democracy itself. And if we ignore the votes of thousands in Florida in this election, how can you, 
or any American, have confidence that your vote will not be ignored in a future election. Great efforts have been made to prevent the counting of these votes. Lawsuit after lawsuit has been filed to delay the count and to stop the counting for many precious days between election day and the deadline for having the count finished. And this would be over long since, except for those efforts to block the process at every turn. There are some who would have us bring this election to the fastest conclusion possible. I have a different view. I believe our Constitution matters more than convenience. So as provided under Florida law, I have decided to contest this inaccurate and incomplete count in order to ensure the greatest possible credibility for the outcome. During Gore's speech, Callie was with his campaign staff in the next room. Many of her photos of Gore have him in the foreground, but this time Callie took a different approach. Gore's the footnote of this photo, slightly blurred in the upper left-hand corner, blending into the background. It's the ultimate behind-the-scenes moment. So I try to get as clean as I can, get as many little details. Right, right, right. You know, in this one, I there's a fo- the photograph in the Naval Observatory where he's speaking in the distance. You know, I think people don't get to see that when one person is making a speech at a teleprompter, most people don't know that all oh, this is going on. The advisor. I just love having like right, uh, all the extra little things. Well, also you're getting a, a sense of the room. Uh, you've got some knickknacks on the shelves. Uh, you've got the political advisor. While Gore is advocating for the completion of the manual recounts, hoping to convince the nation that this pause in the process is necessary, Bush is moving ahead. He isn't the underdog in this chapter of the story. Having been declared the winner of Florida, Bush has the high ground. Sure, that declaration came from Secretary Harris, an appointee of Bush's brother Jeb, and it's being contested by Gore. But the Bush team is still preparing for the White House, despite the legal challenges that lie ahead. Dick Cheney, Bush's running mate, is tasked with managing the transition. And he gets a little help from someone he's known for a long time, his daughter, Liz Cheney. And what they're doing and what he was doing at the time is really overseeing the transition. They were starting to vet people who would become cabinet officers. Uh, They were proceeding as if they would, in fact, win. Really a a prudent thing to do. Somebody was going to win, and so they had to be ready to roll. I mean, they were already way behind on a transition Normally, you start your transition right after the election. On November 30th, from his ranch in Crawford, Texas, Bush addresses the press with Cheney and Colin Powell and talks about how his team is proceeding with transition plans. Thank you all for coming. Laura and I are honored to welcome back to our, uh, our ranch the Cheneys. And of course, uh, today the Powells have come to visit. And we're really thrilled that uh, Colin and Alma took time out of their life to to come down, we're going to spend the afternoon talking about uh, our transition and the uh, particularly talking about national security matters and foreign policy matters. No better person to talk about that with than Colin Powell. He's got a great deal of experience. Dick and I trust his judgment. And uh, so I look forward to a really good afternoon. Colin, thanks for coming. 
Thank you, Governor. Welcome to Crawford, Texas. Thank you. That's when they they announced the opening of the Bush transition offices in McLean, Virginia, and it was um, it was paid for by private donations. Uh, the General Services Administration declined to release transition funds to Bush, of course, because there wasn't a winner, <laughs> and uh, so they just went ahead and did it anyway. Back in the nation's capital, the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in for the first time. It's Friday, December 1st, and they're hearing arguments in response to the Bush team appealing the Florida Supreme Court's decision that recounts completed by November 26th should count in the final tally. The following Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court sets aside the lower court's decision and requests clarification from them on how they came up with the November 26th deadline. There are now two major court cases happening simultaneously. The dispute about accepting recounts completed by November 26th and the historic contesting of election results filed by the Gore campaign. On the same day, the U.S. Supreme Court kicks their case back to the lower court for clarification. Leon County Judge Sauls refuses Gore's challenge to the election results. Gore's team immediately appeals, tossing it up to the Florida Supreme Court. Are you still with me? The following day, outside of the North Portico of the West Wing of the White House, Gore takes questions from the press. He's remarkably candid and upbeat. I uh, don't really have an opening statement. Uh, if you want to ask any questions, feel free. Uh, Vice, Vice President, sir, is this, is this the last battleground, sir? If you lose in the Supreme Court of Florida, will you concede? Well, uh, the, the, the effort I have underway is simply to make sure uh, that, that all the votes are counted. And uh, when, the, um, when, when the issues that are now being considered uh, in the Florida Supreme Court are, uh, are, are decided, that'll, that'll be an important uh, point. Uh, but I don't want to speculate on what the Florida Supreme Court will do. You say the, realistically, realistically, would you say the yeah. odds are against you now? Uh, I don't really, th- I don't really feel that way. No. You feel like an underdog. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I, I felt that way for two years now. But, uh, but I don't feel um, uh, anything other than uh, optimistic. So. Uh, Mr. Vice President, you said yeah. last week that you thought your chances were 50-50. Yeah, I'll stay with that. Now? I'll stay with that. As Gore leaves the North Portico following the press conference, he looks triumphant. Surrounded by a sea of reporters, he stands tall, appearing confident and at peace with the uncertainty of how it will all play out. After the break, the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in again, and this time they put it all to rest. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. 
Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Election 2000 Overtime. I'm your host, Emma Sislawski. So on December 8th... Big day. I, I was invited over to um, the governor's mansion as an off-the-record experience to be there when he listened to uh, uh, these rulings come down. So this day, the Florida Supreme Court was listening to arguments on whether to continue the statewide recount. It was Laura and um, Governor Bush. And so I, I was the only other person in the room. In case you forgot, this is the case from earlier. First, Gore contested the election results. Then, Leon County Judge Sauls ruled against Gore. And finally, Gore appealed that decision, bumping it up to the Florida Supreme Court. Now that you're all caught up, I'll let Callie and David tell the rest. So this was a big deal for Gore because if they could get this decision, hopefully the recount would continue. And they were sitting on the couch and I was sitting on the floor and the, the, the TV was right over my head. So at the Naval Observatory in the family sitting room and Al Gore is on the phone and his daughter Kristen is standing by and they're listening to the news um, to see what's happening with the court decision. And they're watching the announcement from the Florida Supreme Court. This very well could have given them the election. It was my understanding that it was possible that the the Florida Supreme Court could have ruled in Bush's favor at that time and uh, stopped the recount and given him the the election, which means I would have been right there in the room when he found out he was going to be the president of the United States. But that's not how it came out. Uh, The Florida Supreme Court uh, did not rule that Bush uh, won. And that had the effect of kicking it up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, this this gave him the lifeline one more nice. time. And the, all you know, what I can think of, I mean, I love Kristen's reaction. But you know, the thing is, you can hear the TV, and you're thinking, okay, it's going pretty good, and you're just going, okay, don't miss it if some, if they do get excited. But this was this picture is such a perfect match in terms of telling the story and. Uh, uh, 
where you could see it went Gore's way and it didn't go Bush's way. And those, the, my pictures and your pictures reflect precisely what had just happened. And so to show both sides of the story, it's incredibly rare that uh, you would ever get this opportunity. And in this case, my pictures and yours totally Opposite tell what happened on. in the room at that moment. And then, I mean, it, he could have won it. I would have been in the room when it was essentially called for George Bush. Right. And that would have been a hell of a thing because no one else was around. The photographs following the court's decision are similar to those from election night, after Gore retracted his concession. Callie and David again captured the same exact moment, just in different rooms. Two perspectives, two completely opposite emotional reactions. Bush and his wife, Laura, are quiet, serious, whereas Callie's photos of Gore are joyful and celebratory. In one, Gore's even pumping his fist in the air, while his wife, Tipper, and daughter, Kristen, embrace. The Florida Supreme Court rules to allow the recounts to continue. They also order that an additional 383 votes for Miami-Dade and Palm Beach be included in the final vote tally. This reduces Bush's lead to only 154 votes. The Bush team appeals. And this is when the case we know as Bush v. Gore lands on the steps of the Supreme Court. This is the second time the highest court is hearing arguments related to the election. On Monday, December 11th, the Supreme Court hears arguments from lawyers representing Bush and Gore. David and Callie were there, documenting history as it unfolded. So this is outside the Supreme Court. It looked like a homeless camp, kind of a... Uh, so many people, um, everybody waiting for the big word to come down. Protesters um, holding signs that say count every vote. You can see Bush signs, Gore signs. That looks like John Lewis there. It is John Lewis. Because that was when... Um, they were hearing both sides. Yeah, I was up and there, John too. And John was up there, and I just thought it's Civil so Rights March had been to the Supreme Court before. And It's so funny. I don't even remember. You You and I were, looks like we were there at the same time. This moment kind of reminds me of the 60s a little bit, you know, the anti-war protests and all that. And um, it actually wasn't that uh, chaotic. I mean, there were a lot of people there. No uh, there was no animosity, it didn't feel bad, you know, it didn't feel like this is dangerous. Uh, it, it, there were a lot of high feelings. The following day at 10 p.m., the Supreme Court weighs in for the last time. and his family are in the dining room at the official vice presidential residence. As the Supreme Court's 5-4 decision is being read on TV, Gore, flanked by his wife and two daughters, is listening to the news. 
His eyes are closed. It's sinking in that he won't be the next president of the United States. Meanwhile, David was with Cheney. So I was at his house, and um, uh, Mike Green, who was a photographer, was uh, with me. We'd been at Cheney's house earlier, and it looked like they were uh, the Supreme Court wasn't going to make an announcement that day. And so Mike and I left and went over. There was a restaurant nearby, and we ran into a former congressman I knew who had been a friend of Gerald Ford's. And so we're sitting having martinis at this restaurant. It's only not even a mile from Cheney's house. And uh, so we're drinking and having dinner. And uh, uh, Mike got a call from his office saying, it looks like they're going to come out and make the announcement. So I I called over and I said, Dick, they're going to make the announcement. He said, well, get back over here. And so, so Mike and I drove back over to his house. And um, and I'm like, you know, if I'd known all this was going to be happening, I wouldn't have had that extra martini. I was feeling like, and then he pulls out a bottle of wine on top of it. Now, Lynn Cheney is upstairs, and I think Mary was there too, and they both had the flu, so they're not downstairs. And um, we're waiting and waiting, and finally he says, it looks like... Bush is is going to be the president. It looks like they overruled uh, Florida. And it was funny, he wrote in his book uh, later that uh, here's probably the biggest day in my life and the only two people I can celebrate with are David Kennerly and Mike Green. (laughs) And so, uh, uh, and and then later uh, Liz came over and, and other people and I was drinking wine and I can't find half the pictures from that night. So, uh, you know, the rest is history. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. I offered to meet with him as soon as possible so that we can start to heal the divisions of the campaign and the contest through which we've just passed. Neither he nor I anticipated this long and difficult road. Certainly neither of us wanted it to happen. Yet it came, and now it has ended, resolved as it must be resolved through the honored institutions of our democracy. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. Let there be no doubt, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. Shortly after Gore's concession speech, Bush finally claims victory. David is with Cheney that night. In the photo, you can even see David reflected in the mirror, the flash from his camera creating a small circle of light above his head. In the foreground sits Cheney, intently watching the speech. Good evening, my fellow Americans. I appreciate so very much the opportunity to speak with you tonight. Our country has been through a long and trying period with the outcome of the presidential election not finalized 
for longer than any of us could ever imagine. This evening, I received a gracious call from the Vice President. We agreed to meet early next week in Washington, and we agreed to do our best to heal our country after this hard-fought contest. I have a lot to be thankful for tonight. I'm thankful for America, and thankful that we are able to resolve our electoral differences in a peaceful way. I'm thankful to the American people for the great privilege of being able to serve as your next president. A few days later, Bush travels to Washington. It's his first time on the Hill as president-elect, and David is in the room. At first glance, it may appear to be a classic politician at the podium shot, but in typical Kennerly style, there's always more to the photo than meets the eye. In this case, Bush's namesake is making an appearance, hovering above the president-elect, hanging in the shadows, is a portrait of George Washington. On our next and final episode, Gore and Bush finally have their long-awaited one-on-one meeting, and we explore the legacy of Election 2000. We'll take a hard look at some of the elections that have followed and ask ourselves, did we learn anything from those 37 days? For more from the decade that followed this pivotal election, check out CNN's original TV series, The 2000s. It airs Sunday nights at 9 p.m. If you liked this episode, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. And leave us a rating or a review while you're there. Election 2000 Overtime was produced by Vanessa Gonzalez-Block and Amy Eason, with help from Haley Drasnan and Prem Tucker, and with sound design by me. Special thanks to Damien Prado and Stephanie Carday. I'm your host, Emma Sislowski. I got to watch Arafat and Rabin, two people that had despised each other, become friends. You know, when we were in the Oval, and it was Mubarak, Arafat, Rabin, and Hussein with Clinton and Gore. And Arafat went down to the small study, and Rabin did, so I went down there. And I'm watching these two, like, this friendship has developed, and they're talking and, and about what to do and what to sign. And then after um, Rabin was assassinated and Netanyahu came in, um, we were in the Red Room, and there's a photograph of Netanyahu, and he's talking to Arafat, but he's quite taller than Arafat, so he's, it's obvious he's purposely leaning over and talking down to him. And he walks away, and Arafat comes over to me, and he grabs my hand and pats it, and he said, I miss my friends so much. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.